Well, we're going to get into Genesis 1 in the beginning, right? All right. So what we're going to do here, uh, before getting into the, 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 the sermon for today, you just for those that are here and those that are home, it's just really, really, really good uh, to see some faces coming back that have been away uh, during the COVID season. It's just, it does our heart, all of our hearts, very, very well. And so thank you so much. It's, I don't know, it's, it's almost, well, lack of a better word, it's emotional, you know, in a good way. Yeah, so good. So a home, what do they call it, a homewarming? Or, it's a housewarming or homecoming? A homecoming, yeah, homecoming. Yeah. yeah. All right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right? Bereshit bara Elohim et shemaim ve'et ha'aretz, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Let's go down to verse 10. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. 27, verse 27, I know we're jumping around a little bit. Only because Americans' attention spans probably can't go through a whole chapter. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He, God, created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If we go down to verse 31, then God saw... Everything that he had made. Then God saw everything that he had made. And a very, very powerful statement is recited. I believe it is the only time in the entirety of the Bible. And indeed, it was very good. Tov ma'od. Very good. Not just good. Very good. Right? Lord, we come before you and we just, Lord, we want to bask in your goodness. Father, I pray that we all can be people, including myself, Lord God, especially myself, that we could be a people that submit ourselves, I'm using my words very, very, very specifically, to your goodness. Hmm. All right, here we go, guys. <clears throat> um, we're going to be starting a, a, a sermon series, which uh, we're calling the Memorial Stones. So last week was Memorial Day. I did a teaching on the importance of memory. Memorial Stones, we're going to kind of bring it back into that to connect it to last week a little bit. This is where we're going. We're going into a place of these cairns, right? A cairn is, a, is at least an old uh, uh, Celtic or English way of referring to a memorial, right? The building up of stones, right? So that they would be there so that we would remember a significant event or a significant thing that has been done. And in the Bible, there are loads of times, particularly in the first 
several books of the Bible, in the, in the Torah, in the, in the Pentateuch, five books of the Bible, whereby there is the building of these stones, the building of altars, the building of memorials, to remember. Because mankind has a very typical demeanor whereby we forget the good things and we remember the bad things. It's unbelievable, actually. The amount of good things that happen to us on a daily basis, how quickly we forget those things, and our mind wants to reflect and remember the bad things. It's really kind of wacky. Uh, and so this sermon, series, this sermon series, this sermon is entitled The Eternal Good. Okay? So bear with me. There's going to be maybe a couple, a couple uh, quick lefts uh, while we're driving down this one. All right, look, I just feel like in modern times, like people, we all need to hit a pause button and be like, oh, yeah, by the way, God is good. Anyone? Like in the midst of whatever you're going through, like, yo, let's hit a pause button. God is good. In fact, not only is he good, after every point of creation, and I didn't go through it because there's quite a few lines, after every single day that God creates, he stops, and the last thing he does at the end of the day, before beginning a second day, or a third day, or a fourth day, a fifth day, a sixth day, and a seventh day, he stops, and he says, I look back on what I did today, and what I built today, and it is good. This is a shocker for some of us living in the 21st century world. God is good. His earth is good. His heavens are good. They're good. Now, that's tough, man. It's tough when we're going through COVID and we're going through political seasons and we're going through things. But there is a very, very important aspect of understanding that all of it that God has made is defined by himself as it is good. Anyone, anyone ever like pick up some of that energy? It's like, oh, the earth is so bad, and the, and the country is this, and the people are that, and the this, and the that, and the that, and the that, and that. It's like, pause. God said that when he made the heavens and the earth, that it was good. Then, therefore, it has to be good. It's good. Now, in modern man, I'm just reflecting all this, modern man, I've kind of in this category, I feel that modernity has developed two types of people when looking at this notion of good and goodness. There's one group of people, man, they're, they're rough. You don't want to be around these people too often. Uh, there are people that there is no good. Right? Eeyore, right? The Eeyore spirit, right? There's a cloud, there's funk, there's things that are bad, things are never going to be better, things are never going to be good. It's just... <laughs> you know, these people are beat back. Their spirit is broken. And I think it's a very healthy reminder to the church when the world gets so toxic that we be the bearers of light and be like, oh, by the way, it is good. But all these things are going on, I know, but God is good. He has made a good earth and a good heavens. It's good. So you have that type of person. There is no good. And then, you know, then you always have the, the sophisticated friends, you know, the sophisticated friends, uh, which I think is really the point intent of this sermon today, and that is, you know, whom we like to call the humanists. Well... 
Good is an abstract concept, you know. Uh, good and what is good comes from the inside of men and women. Hold on to this. This is important statements that I'm saying here, right? The humanist group. Well, there's good, but the good is inside of people. And we, as humans, we can articulate that which is good based upon, well, how and what we feel. Okay? No, seriously, uh, Time Magazine did an incredible article. I had my students in class read it. Uh, about the millennial generation, I think it was like 65%, 65 or 70% of millennials, when surveyed, say that they will know what the right thing to do is in the moment based upon how they feel and what, they, what they're feeling. Right? The humanist believes that the compass of good, the compass of morality is from within. Right? It's all inside. It's all internal. There's nothing good except for that which is inside of me and how what I determine to be good. Now, I don't mean to completely lose people in this kind of verbiage and this, this stuff, but today's going to be a little bit more of a, a philosophical uh, type of, exp not, not explanation, but laying a groundwork here. Okay? So, looking at all this, hence I got my coffee. You know, it's like, it is very good. All right. No, it's fine. It was good. It was a good time. So, yeah, the re looking at this, it's this, you know, going forward, in, in going forward in the entire sermon series, but particularly today, it's this. You know, we need to know more than ever the foundational stones of our faith. And I don't just mean like Jesus loves you and he died for you. I mean like the foundational stones, the cornerstones, the fundamentals, right? You ever watch like uh, little kids playing uh, a sport, right? It's all about the fundamentals, Right? We need now, more than ever, to know our foundational stones. And in this context, it's this. What is good and who is good? What is good and who is good? Now, I'm sure everyone in here really knows who is good. But the tricky matter is what is good? This is, that's the one that's going to ruffle the feathers. We'll save that for the end. Joshua chapter 4, right? This is what I was uh, talking about uh, last week. Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. And it came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe. And command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men, whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. And each one of you take up a stone in his, on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What? do these stones mean? Then you shall answer them. The waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. All right? The whole purpose of biblical memorials, biblical stones, is really so that the next generation will remember. 
This is key. This is key to our Christian walk. We need to remember fundamental truths because the world is coming to take them. Okay? They are coming to take them. Fundamentals, man. Life is good. It is not bad. It is not a funk. Life is incredible. God breathed his breath inside of man. Just that alone is unbelievably good. So whatever you're going through, whatever I'm going through, you just got to stop and be like, you know what? Whatever I'm going through right now, the breath of God is inside of me. How amazing is that? No other creature on planet Earth or any other creature in heaven has that. Angels don't have that. I, as a son of Adam, have that. Can you imagine how jealous an angel must be? Yeah, it's called Lucifer. It's called Satan. That's why he can't stand us. He can't stand you, and he wants to do everything inside of you to get you to forget a fundamental principle, that life is good because God breathed his breath inside of me, not you, Lucifer. Ooh, how upset he is and how much he wants to lie to you to co-opt the very concept that you existing, no matter what is going on, a terminal disease, poverty, a concentration camp, whatever it could ever imagine it to be, the very fact that you exist is the most unbelievable goodness on the face of the earth and the heavens. Think about that when you wake up and you got to do your nine-to-five job. It is unbelievable. Angels have become jealous. In fact, a third of all angels became jealous to the fact that you have the breath of God inside of you. How can you be down with that? Right? Come on, right? All right, where was I? Life is good, creation is good, God is good, and he wants good for you. But these foundational concepts are challenged daily, moment by moment. Come on, you go into the workplace, it's challenged. You wake up next to your spouse, it's challenged sometimes. Right? The kid is, is the kid that you have, it's challenged. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. You don't know what I'm talking about. You must, you, I don't know. You must be like single and uh, living a hermit life inside of your, you know, in a cabin somewhere in the middle of somewhere, right? Anyone that engages with the world in any shape or form knows that these foundational elements of the goodness of all things is challenged. But right, this is, this is the importance of the modern world. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world. Look, the church of Christ the bride of Messiah needs to hear this right now. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. Interesting. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? So here's the fundamental piece. Now, I was at a softball game yesterday for my daughter. A little bit of proud daddy moment. She's got her fundamentals down. Right? She knows how to throw. She knows you don't lead in with your elbow. There's lots of other kids there that are throwing the wrong way. 
It all comes back to her dad is teaching her how to throw a ball the right way. Okay? And other kids, clearly mom or dad did not teach them how to throw a ball the right way. There's people in the church who never had a papa in the spirit or a mother in the spirit that told you how to throw the ball the right way. And the ball is this, people. How you perceive the nature of God will be how you will perceive your environment and your circumstances. That is it. How you perceive, Father. He's a God of wrath. Well, good luck getting through this life. You know? He wants to vindicate and punish and judge. Man, whew. Please don't come to our church. Right? No. He has told us that he is good. Now, this is the thing. It's, it's so fundamental. What does Jesus say, right? Or what does the word say? Jesus is the cornerstone which the builders rejected. Stone. Jesus is the penultimate memorial stone. He is the cornerstone which all things are built on, but yet the builders have rejected it and him. Think about it. What is Jesus? Redemption, salvation, repentance, goodness. Here's the thing. Since the garden, this is really what it comes down to. Since the garden, man has been on a quest to be the one who determines what is good. This is the original sin, people. All these, you know, people talk about, like, you know, was it an apple? Was it a pear? Was it a plum? Was it this, that, and everything? It's like, before Adam and Eve ate of the apple, they had a knowledge of good and evil. Of course they did. God told them not, not, what not to do, and God told them what to do. There was a knowledge of good and evil. That's not the story. Them now eating an apple, and now they know about evil and that, that's not the story. I know that's somehow the way it's delivered. That's not what's going on here. In the biblical story, the real nuance of what's going on here is when they eat of the knowledge of good and evil, they now adopt their godhood. They themselves are the moral compass to determine what is good and what is evil. They knew good and evil before. Don't eat of that tree. It's evil. Don't do it. When they ate, they themselves become the gods. We determine what is right and wrong based upon how I feel. Opposed to God determines what is right and wrong regardless of how I feel. Massive difference to the story. Okay? This coffee must be doing its work. <laughs> Questions to ask in all this. You know, I was listening to a, a podcast, and, and um, a buddy of mine does. He had this guy on, and really very interesting. Thinking about good and evil and, 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 and all of that. Interesting question to, to be raised. I'm not trying to offend, so I always have, I have to explain, right? Explain, David. Let's talk about a social justice movement for a moment. Is it biblical to do justice socially? Yeah. <laughs> of course it is. Right? I mean, 
70% of prophetic literature in the Bible is about like feeding orphans and taking care of widows and doing right and all that kind of stuff. Of course it is. But this, you know, when we take a look at it outside of biblical construct, think about this. It's a very profound question. What if? What if whatever movement is being done and every movement could be completed? I mean, everything that is humanly possible that you can think of that needs to be fixed in a social justice movement, what if it was fixed? What if man in their own energy did it? Now what? Now what? What else needs to get done? What if everything that got done gets done? It raises this, this question, right? It raises an element of, okay, you know, the world is trying to bring forth an element of goodness in the ways and the manner in which they think it should be done. And I want to clarify, things should be done process here is which moral compass is one using? And why do you have the desire to do it? There's a lot of very interesting studies being done that people may not really care about the movement that they're a part of, but they have a void inside of them that they know that they're supposed to be doing something, so they have to do something. And that's why some of these movements get crazy. Because they're not trying to bring forth a goal. They're trying to bring forth a goal that can never be achieved. And that is filling a place in their heart of wanting to make an impact. And determining and creating their good on planet Earth. So it's very, very dangerous. It's a very kind of humanist thing. If it's not rooted in the scriptures, not rooted in the Bible, the compass of Christ that brings forth all social justice. Okay? But I want to clarify for friends that may be listening. There is a time and a place to go do something for crying out loud. Of course there is. But it's tapping into this notion of who is the one that is determining. Who is determining the right, the wrong, and the process to achieve. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, the, the, the great German philosopher, uh, uttered this phrase that God is dead, right? And I don't need to explain that. What, what he was talking about is this. Very dark stuff about this moral compass piece. This is pre-World War II Europe, this is pre-Nazi party. He utters his phrase, God is dead. He did not mean that God is dead. His full phrase is, God is dead and we killed him. And what he was getting at here is this. European society has gotten so sophisticated and so humanistic that we don't need God anymore. We became the moral compass. But he gives a caveat. He doesn't just leave it there. He says, and because of that, and because we're not replacing it with anything, he says, I actually foretell that in the next hundred years we'll be marked with terror and death and destruction until mankind rewrites and replaces God with something outside of ourselves. That's very, very dark because the, the 20th century is one of the darkest centuries on planet Earth, particularly in Germany where Nietzsche is coming from. This is the thing. If your moral compass is not God, then what is it? If the social justice peace is not rooted in God, then what is it rooted in then? And if you achieve all of the things that you think you can achieve, then what? If God is not in the picture, ooh, there is a lot of problems that are going on there, okay? So the great thinkers of humanity have, have discussed such kind of elements. And so here is a picture or painting of uh, Nietzsche. And he comes up, please, there's, there's, a, there's a reason for this, by the way. Uh, he comes up with this concept of, uh, in German, it's called the Ubermensch. It means like a superman. What he believed is that in the quest of goodness, mankind is to achieve and come to a place of the ideal form. 
the greatest, most virtuous of people. Okay? Socrates comes up with the idea of the ideal good. Now, this is, yeah, this is philosophy. Now, you know, Dave, this is, this is not supposed to be a philosophy course. What do you mean it's not supposed to be a philosophy course? Philosophy, philo, love, Sophie, wisdom. You are all philosophers. You love wisdom, I hope. Wisdom is God. God is wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is fearing his name. So you're all here philosophers in some regards. Right? But really what I'm trying to tap into here is this. You know, Socrates is actually the first man in the Western world. This is amazing. This is like 2,500 years ago. He is the first man outside of Judaism. This is key. The Jews have been doing this since Genesis 1. He is the first man outside of Judaism to establish an ideal good that is above and beyond and outside of us. He's the first one outside of Moses. Why am I bringing this up? Because I actually respect these men. They missed the mark of understanding what goodness is, but they at least understood that good is only and can only be found outside of ourselves. But here's the problem. This is the big problem, and this is why I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a little bit of a background to this philosophical thought. The problem here is with modern man. Modern man believes that the ideal good is on the inside. These guys said man is not ideally good. Good is on the outside that we need to try to achieve. Modern man in a postmodern society and post-contemporary modernism believes that what is inside of us is good and we need to tap into that based upon how we feel. But you have to understand this. This is, this is the memorial stone, people. Postmodernism is not entering the church. It has entered the church. It's not entering the church. It has entered the church. The big C church. Whatever makes you feel good, whatever seems to be right, however you are feeling about a given situation, no! Good is not inside of you. It is outside of you, but it's been breathed inside of you. God is good. And his ways are good. But I don't feel this way right now. Doesn't matter how you feel. I know this is where I ruffle feathers. It does not matter how you feel in some regards. It does, right? You want to process that. But what he says is actually the ideal. And what he says is more important than what you say about yourself. What you say about yourself and your circumstance is an inside good that you receive when you bit of the apple of Adam and Eve. So, okay. Nietzsche, Socrates, they're not the only ones, right? They're not the only ones. Because Socrates is trying to establish this idea of an ideal and eternal good that is outside of man that can be achieved and reached through a life pursuit. But how wonderful is it that the disciple that, that, that bears his head and puts his head on the breast of Jesus at the Passover, John, 
uses pretty much the same language as Socrates, but gives us his ideal truth. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What John uses here, I'm sure you've heard this before in sermons, right? The, in the beginning was the word. It's the Greek word logos. But what's so powerful about the Greek word logos, it is what Socrates is using to explain this notion of the ideal good which is outside of ourselves. What is John saying here? He's commenting on Socrates. He's commenting on Greek culture. And he's saying that the ideal goodness of all things is not something that is outside of yourself that you need to pursue. The ideal good is actually coming to earth to pursue you. God is good. The ideal good, eternal good, has pursued me since the garden. Completely different here. And this is what we got here is the ideal logos, the ideal, absolute, perfect good, the word came in the identity and manifestation of Jesus. And this is the foundational stone we, we have to, we have to like try to tap into. God is not just good as an attribute. He is the very concept and object of good in a physical manifestation. You're not going to get the rest of this sermon unless you really plug into this right now. God is not just good as an attribute. He is what good is. Anything that is good is him. He's not just a good God. He is what good is. The idea, the abstract and the physical idea of that which is G-O-O-D is actually him. If it's not that, you are following Lucifer. Do you hear me? He is the penultimate expression of what goodness is. His nature is good. He is good. But all of him is the embodiment of what good is. Okay? And there's three things we need to remember about this, and which does not fly over well in the post-modern church. One, God's nature is good. And that, I, I like that. No, no, no. God's nature is good. So that means, yes, even his wrath. Oh, people don't like that one. I like reading John, but I don't like reading Revelation. God's nature is good, and his judgments are good. And his judgments are righteous. Who would not want to serve a just God? He is just. He is good. And his wrath on earth is actually good. The heavens and the earth and all creation are good. And of course, he wants good for you. Now this is where we get into problems. We need to redefine good. This is where some of you, this is really where the, the feathers get ruffled. I mean, I got a bunch of scripture verses here, but I, I, I'm assuming that I don't have to go through all of them. We all know that God wants good for you, right? I mean, Jeremiah, right? My plans for you are a hope and a future and well-being, right? 
you know, Exodus, if you serve me and follow my commands, you are my special people. I will bear the covenant. Like, his desire is good for us, right? But this raises a tough question, and, and, and for those of you that are a little more understanding of the word, I think this is when we can start to really tap into, you know, giving you something to chew on this week. You have to ask the question, well, what is good? What is, what, what's the idea of good? What, what is good? Is, is good a human perception? Like, I get to determine what good is? I'm losing some of you. Look, look, what I'm talking about here is this. Like, you not being able to pay your bill, is that good? Uh, you going through a hard time, through a hard experience, is that good? Of course it's not good. Eh? Who's good? How you perceive the good, or are we talking about an actual eternal and ideal good? This is where, you know, where I'm going to get the emails. Send them to Pastor Josh. <laughs> See, if we are the ones that are defining what good is, that is coming from within. Okay? But what happens if we remove ourselves to what we think is good and we take a look at the eternal good, the ideal good manifested by God through Jesus? I mean, Jesus is good incarnate. The eternal and ideal logos, the eternal and ideal good is what? It, follow me here. If Jesus is the penultimate expression of the goodness of the Father on earth, then therefore, all eternal good and ideal good would be to what? To be transformed into the character of Jesus. Any other good is not the ideal good. It is a human perception of good. Ah, this is tough. I always didn't want to teach on this. This is tough. It's tough, man, because we're going up against a post-contemporary Christianity. If you getting an increase in your career and job does not lead you into the kingdom, it is not good. If you doing X, Y, and Z keeps you from the community of God and does not allow you to vote yourself to times of prayer and fasting in community, it is not good. It's not good. But it's good. I'm, I'm able to get paid more money and I really like my job. Fine. That's the human perception of good. It's not the ideal good. The ideal good is Jesus and being transformed into his image because he is the penultimate logos. He is the penultimate expression of the beauty and character and goodness of God. Anything else? It's not the gospel. So, this raises big questions that I probably could do like a whole other sermon series on. But, but I don't get it, Dave. The eternal and ideal good. But, but, but God is good and he wants good for us, but bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to good people. Yes. Yes. I heard a comedian said, if anyone doesn't say that life is hard, they're just trying to sell you something. <laughs> kind of funny. And it's this notion of this. Look, bad things happen to people. Bad things happen to sons and daughters of the Most High God. Yes, yes. And I know there's all these different schools of thought on healing and on, 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 on healing. Really, the big thing is healing and, and prosperity. 
Look, I mean, until you are a, a pastor that has to sit there and console someone because a loved one died way before what we believe to be their time, you don't get it. But we prayed. We had faith. What are you going to do? Oh, well, God said if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you'd see it. What do you do with that? Well, you just didn't have enough faith. But, but I, I, I was definitely bigger than a mustard seed. How is that good? Let me give this caveat. We as a church, we believe 110% the healing of the sick. We believe 110% praying over dead people and seeing them be raised again. Why? Because God said so. But I didn't see them get healed. Well, sometimes you don't, sometimes you do. But, but, but how do you know the will of the Father? Because the Bible tells me to put my hands on the sick and pray for them and believe that they will be restored. That's why we do it. But, but it says do it. But at the same point, there's another element of the balance. And the other side of the balance is at some point we would die. So are you telling me that if I'm 105 years old, and I have some kind of weird disease, if I still continue to have faith as small as a mustard seed, I would just continue living? See, if they're 105 and they die, you, no one in this room would be like, oh, they didn't have faith. They're 105, they died. So if that's the case, oh, they entered into life. But, yeah, but if that's the case, if someone's 105 and they die from a disease, they had faith, they were just old. But someone who dies earlier, did they have faith? This is what I'm getting at here. Our own human perception of that which is good, we put these parameters. No, 105, that's fine. 13 or 12 or 25, that's not fine. And so let me give some caveats here. We do not believe that it's God's desire that man would perish. We don't believe that it's God's desire or even God is the one who's giving you the disease or giving you the problem. That's ridiculous. It's not in the Bible. Right? It's not in the Bible at all. But there's a reality that the sin of Adam has entered the world. And here's the thing that I need you to chew on. Don't dismiss it right away. When it comes to bad things happening to good people, could it very well be that man's perception of good has also entered the world? As sin has entered the world, has our perception of good also entered the world? This is good, this isn't good. Who said? I said. Okay, well, here's, here it is, right? Question one, to chew on. What if we look at the notion of good through the very, maybe we are looking through the notion of good through the very carnal eyes of Adam. I lost my job, that's not good. Who says? But I'm feeling ill, that's not good. Who says? But, but, but something bad has happened to me. That's not good. Who says? Adam? Or heaven? This, this is really out there stuff. Look, what I'm trying to pre-program or reprogram is this. Liberate yourself from this postmodern Christianity. Your life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. This is the training ground. This, as Eileen, I think, was getting at, this is not life. This is death. But so many of us want to hold on to this death so much that we never find life. That's what Jesus is talking about. You're here today, gone tomorrow. So 
This place is a, is a training ground. And so what if it's this? What if the fallen nature of the world is actually a vehicle for us to be transformed into the eternal good with Jesus? Let me read that again. What if the fallen nature of the world and all the bad things that happen to us, what if all of the bad things that can happen to us is actually a vehicle for us to be able to be transformed into the image of Jesus? Would that now change our view of our circumstances? Would that now change our view of goodness? Can you imagine if Adam and Eve did not eat of the apple? God forbid. But, but God, God forbid. What do you mean God forbid? If Adam and Eve did not eat of the apple, would Adam and Eve be molded into the image of Christ? We'll say that for another day then. Big questions. Let me pull it back a little bit. If Adam and Eve did not eat of the apple, would Jesus have to come down to earth and, be, and, and, and suffer death, resurrection, and be glorified? So some people say, oh, God forbid the apple. Some make actually reposition and say, praise God for the apple. Because now Jesus gets to be lifted up. I don't want to get into the whole theological weeds. I don't even think people even know the complete theological underpinnings of all this. But let me just rewind so I don't completely mess with all of our theological brains. And it's this. Man, what if the tough things that we go through are actually a vehicle for the transformation of ourselves to be molded into the image of Jesus? Right? Because Adam sinned. Then therefore he was not like Jesus, because Jesus sinned not. So something's off, right? In my personal opinion, Adam and Eve were not Jesus-like. They sinned. Then therefore they could not have been Jesus-like. There's only one, and his name is lifted up because of our fall and his resurrection. Look, you know, this is, this is the weird thing about goodness, is what I'm trying to say. The trial and tribulations come... What do the men and women of faith say? What they say is this, I glory. Jess, if you come on down. Please. Like, you, hear, you, you hear this? See, James, when he says, when I, when, when I, when, I glory in all trials, tribulations, and persecutions, I'm excited when they come. Can you imagine this? You know what I'm talking about? James chapter 1? Right, to the diaspora? Glory. Just stop. Glory in all trials and tribulations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, that you will be complete and perfect, lacking nothing. This is a man who's so crazy because what he has here is this, which we don't have in the postmodern Christendom. If a trial and if a tribulation comes, and it's going to lead me into the character development to be progressively sanctified into the image of Jesus, I welcome it. Because the ideal good is not for you to go through a life that is perfectly easy. And your ideal form of good should not be just a whole bunch of money or a great career or all of your family relationships just perfect, perfect, perfect. That is the human perception of good which has been handed to us when we ate of the apple. The ideal good is take everything away from me if it points me to Christ. 
That's a third world underground church. Take everything. Yes, take democracy from me if it points people to Christ. If I have to go through a trial and a tribulation for every last piece of the carnality of Adam to fall off of me, I glory in it. This is not David Greenockle saying this. This is James. This is Peter. This is Paul. What is your perception of good? What the earth has given to you or what God has given to you? The ideal good is to be like Jesus. And for Jesus to become like Jesus, what happened to him? I mean become like Jesus, fulfill. What had to happen to him? Everyone rejected him, even the Father. Everyone rejected him. He was tortured. He was beaten. He was put on a cross. He went through all of that to fulfill the fullness of the ideal good. That even if everyone and everything turns away from you, you stand on the ideal good of God the Father. Do you want that in your life? Now, I'm not advocating for you to just be some crazy lunatic that starts praying away your friends and your family and hardship and all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. I don't think that's biblical either. Because life is good, and family is good, and relationships are good. It's good. But it's a notion of perception. What you think is good may be Adam's version of good and not God's good for you. They're completely different. They're theologically, philosophically completely different nine times out of ten. I don't want good. Do you hear me? Right? The greatest enemy of great is good. I don't want good. I don't want good. I want tov ma'od. I want very good. I want the ideal eternal good. That's what I want. I want the very good of John 1. I want the very good of Genesis 1. That's what I want. Humans just want to give you good. I want the ideal. I want to be formed, transformed into the image of Messiah. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand? What's so beautiful about the very good, the ideal good found in Genesis 1, going into Genesis 2, is this. After every mark of creation, God says, I saw that it was good. But after he creates man, he says nothing. He doesn't say it was good. He waits. He waits until he's ready to rest. Once he's ready to rest, he then says, it is very good. Here is the piece of the puzzle for those of you that are, are, are in this vibe right here. How do we step into the very good, the ideal good? You need to blend man and Sabbath. You need to blend man and rest. And what does the scripture say? Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. How do we achieve very good? You take man and you take Jesus and you make them together and you get the very good. You get the very good of creation. Not the good of creation, the very good of creation. You don't just get the word, you get the logos, the ideal form of good. Hebrews chapter 4, closing with this, verse 9. For those who have ears, let them hear on this one. There remains therefore a rest, a Sabbath for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. 
Let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. What we have here is this. There is an age of Sabbath rest. That age of Sabbath rest is the coming of Christ. Not just the coming of Christ, but what he is. The ideal goodness. That's how we get rest. That's how we enter into the ideal good. Man, if your ideal good is to be transformed into Jesus, it doesn't matter what the world throws at you. You're going to be like, whatever, as long as it points me to Christ. Yeah, but you got a disease, whatever, as long as it points me and my family to Christ. But, but, but maybe you're going to die before you're 105, whatever, man. Whatever allows me, my community, my family to be pointed to Christ, I welcome it. But, but, but you can save your life if you do not go on the mission field, whatever. I want my life to be whatever it is to point people to Christ. This is the mark of a disciple. This is not postmodern Christianity. My life is not my own. I do not try to conserve it and squeeze 105 years. No. The mark of a, God, of, of a disciple is to wear out, not rust out. You hear what I'm saying? We wear out. What do you mean you wear out? Yeah, your head gets cut off by a Roman authority figure. What do you mean you wear out? Yeah, you're crucified upside down. Humanist Christians rust out. They conserve and wait and wait, and they live a slow, pathetic life. Because their life is not found in Christ. Your life to be found in Christ is to give it all. Come on, does he not say he who tries to save his life will lose it? This isn't like, oh, I just want my life and do what I want. No, if you're trying to save your life and conserve your life for as long as possible and you do everything you can to conserve, conserve, and save, come on, man, you're not a Christian. You're not a disciple. Sorry, this is usually when I start to like pick up the energy here. I apologize for all those that are watching, all those that are here. But come on, the time is at hand. The Lord is near. This is not Dave. This is the gospel. He's near. He's coming back. The wrath of God on earth. And we got people who are like, well, whatever good is inside of me, that's what I want to manifest. No, no. That's, that's, that's humanism. That's philosophy. Christianity is I lay everything down. And when the world tries to take me off the cross, I put myself willingly back on the cross. Take my life in the spirit, right? I don't want me to be me anymore. I want Christ. I want the ideal goodness of God to reside inside of me. And no matter what comes, Whatever one comes, if it's pointing me in that direction, I glory in all of it. Lord, let us be a people that can find, yes, a glory in the losing of a job. Father, let us be of a people that can glory in any hardship, in any difficulty that comes because our minds are not set on a human perception of that which is good. But our good is deeper than that. It's further than that. It's beyond all of that. The goodness to serve is to be transformed from glory to glory. 
until we see Christ Jesus face to face anything else you picked the wrong religion calling a spade a spade anything else you pick the wrong religion you pick another one there's lots of them out there now this faith this faith this faith is a narrow gate to whom few will find it's a narrow gate to whom few will find Come on. Lord, if I make my bed in the body, in the belly of Sheol, I shall find your presence. If I'm on the mountaintop of life, if I'm in the mountaintops of life, your presence is there. But if I'm in the doldrums of life, your presence is there as well. Lord, 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 let us be a people who say, I'm not putting on the armor of Saul. I'm putting on the armor of David. Come on. Come on, let us be a people that say, I'm not going to be a person that stands in the land of Ur like Abraham's father. No, I'm going to go out to a promised land. And in that promised land, it's going to be hard getting there. By the Spirit of God and by a pillar of fire, I shall see the promised land. I shall enter the rest. Come on, people. This is not just anything. Come on, this is Ezekiel, a wheel within a wheel. This is Isaiah. I am undone before you. Purify me, Jesus. Come on. These aren't people that take the mark of the beast. These are people that say, My eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. And I saw the scrolls open. And the, and the living creatures. And the bowls of wrath are empty. But I glory in it. Because it's the coming of Jesus. Come on. This is Paul the Apostle. I'm a bond servant of Christ. I want to know his death. I want to know his resurrection. That's not a Herod being secluded and cloistered in, 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 in the king's palace. This is a John the Baptist in the wilderness. I shall eat locusts and honey and be a madman in the wilderness because I'm here to declare, prepare ye the way of the Lord. This is God himself who's in the throne room that says, I got to come down. I need to come down and show these people what the ideal good is to be transformed into the image of my son because they are my sons. I'm telling you people, I'm sorry this is getting long, but I feel this is the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you there's a spirit on the earth. I'm telling you there's a spirit in the church. Do what makes you feel right. Do what you think is good and what you feel to be appropriate. It's a subtle thing. It's a power of the garden. It's a jealousy of Lucifer. How freeing and how liberating it is to cast off the chains of human thought and perception and say, no, no, I want to be chained. I want to be chained by the words of Christ. I want to be chained by the love of Christ. Whatever happens, it doesn't matter. 
Dave, how can you say that? I'm sorry. It's called the gospel. Whatever happens to me on this earth, it doesn't matter. As long as all things point me to Christ. And if all things point others to Christ, it doesn't matter. That's the mark of an apostle. That's the mark of a disciple. All else are men building up their own kingdoms on earth. Church, I'm telling you, this is from the throne room of the Lord. Church, the Father is saying, come on. Stop your human perception of good. Spirit of God, fall right now. Those that are home, those that are here. The Spirit, let the Spirit of the Bride say, come. Let the Spirit of the Bride say, come. The Spirit of the Bride to be purified, come. Let the Spirit of the Bride to be anointed with fine oils, come. Come. We'll be purified. Purified. Come on. Right now, right now, there are virgins who are not cutting their wicks. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Right now, there are virgins on earth that are not taking care of their lampstand right now. The Spirit of the Bride says, Come trim the wicks, grab the oil, shout on the rooftop. Cast away every high thought. Every high thought, every high thought that society says to us, this is good. I don't want good. I want very good. I want God's divine purposes for my life. No matter what it needs to come to get me there. I invite it. I say, I glory. I glory. I want to be made perfect in the image of Christ. I want to know patience. I want to know long-suffering. I want to know humility. I want to know Christ and His resurrection. Christ and His death. Come on. If this is you, you need us. Get, get out in the aisles. Come on out to the altar. Come on, let's just, let's just receive right now. I'm telling you, the Spirit of the Bride says, Come. The Spirit of the Bride says, Come. I want the ideal good. Be molded into your image in Christ Jesus. Everything else, everything else, humanism, everything else, philosophy, everything else, post-contemporary modernity. I want Christ. I want Christ. I want Christ. We want Him. We want Him. We want Him. Spirit of Christ. Spirit of the God, living God. Spirit of the living God, come down and make Isaiah's. Spirit of the living God, come down and make Paul's and Peter's again. Come, Lord Jesus. Fall. Fall. Go, shadanababa. Come on, we're just going to receive right now. If you want to go over to the cafe, please do. But this is definitely not a time for casual conversation. These are people laid out before the Lord saying, I welcome a transformation. I welcome it in Christ Jesus. We've been serving good for too long. We've been serving good for too long. Come on, have a wonderful week. We'll be up here praying.